1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Cole coming away, looking full of fight, And Britain are going to have two remarkable wins. And Cole could have a remarkable record. And does. It's a new world record for Sebastian Coe. His second
3: in 12 days. Two gold medals in the two... Uh, Outstanding middle distance events, the 800 metres and the 1500 metres, shared by Steve Ovet and now Sebastian Coe. He's had two Olympic silvers, he's had a European silver, he's had a European bronze at 800 metres, but now he's got the gold.
2: Sebastian Newbold Coe has represented his country with distinction. On the track, four Olympic medals, double gold, numerous world records, and he led the charge of British middle-distance running for much of the 1980s. Off the track, elected MP of Falmouth, headed London's successful bid to host the 2012 Olympics, has twice been elected President of World Athletics, and sits in the House of Lords. I think the, the real way that I'd like to start talking about you, Seb, is really, sort of, we get to where we are now and you start to look back and you look back in a, in a different way. I've looked at your life and it has been so full and so busy right from the start. There's never really been a chance to reflect on these things. It's, it's a bit like you're running. You're there at the front and you're getting across the finishing line still. So if we go right back to how it started for you, Football was your passion, as you said, as a youngster, but it was going to be athletics. Still is. I know it still is, but it was going to be athletics (laughs) uh, through cross-country running, really, to start with. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I moved to Sheffield uh, when I was 11. I was brought up in sort of... I'm a Londoner, West London boy, uh, but then my father was a manufacturing engineer, sort of kept moving the family further north, and... Ultimately, we went through Leafy, Warwickshire and then ended up in Sheffield. And it was really in Sheffield that my athletics career started. I joined a local club. I always loved running. It was just one of those things that I still feel liberated by running. My kids will tell me that, you know, if I don't run for a couple of days, I notice it. If I don't run for three days, they notice it. And so for me, it's a very therapeutic, still a very therapeutic thing to do. And... I guess that love of running became more serious when I joined the Athletics Club. And yes, it was the Northern Harrier tradition. You ran distance. And, you know, Brendan Foster always used to say to me that he only actually got full accolade for what he'd achieved, not through his Olympic titles or his European titles, but when he sort of won a national cross-country title. And that's when people, you know, in his club sort of, looked at him and thought oh yeah you're you're pretty good so cross-country was really important yeah. and the basis of all good middle distance running i mean
2: cross-country in what would then have been the late 60s 70s let's mm. talk about that was um basically still for all of us the first point of exercise yeah. yes we played the sport in the schools but when the the pitches weren't good enough to play on and it rained or something yeah we were cross-country running. yeah
3: you were and actually my Well, it's an amusing story, and thank goodness it sort of happened, but I actually got into cross-country running because I was playing football, and I got sent off for swearing. And the PE teacher that sent me off said, right, you can go and run four or five laps of the playing fields. And a lovely guy, David Jackson, who became a close, close friend and head of geography at school I was in in Sheffield, looked at this kid running around the edge of the pitch, and he said... uh, you're in the wrong sport, you should run. And, of course, he had actually run for Derbyshire Schools as a cross-country runner. So he was very instrumental. I mean, my father was beginning to coach me at that point, but he was very instrumental in giving me the time and space in the school curriculum. In fact, he, he was an odd guy, he was a funny guy. He was an atheist, but he also took religious instruction. And he'd sidle up to me in classes and go, because he was a former runner, he'd say how's your mileage this week? And if I went, well, it's a little bit low, he'd go off, You go. Yeah. Which probably tells you a great deal about my <laughs> religious underpinning <laughs> as well as my athletics career. <laughs> Let's talk about Peter, your coach, your dad, yeah, your mentor. Um, and a very close friend.
2: And a close friend. And I think right at the start for me, it would be, you can't detach from the parent-child relationship in the way that you had to unless you are close. Does that yeah. make sense?
3: It does make sense. And you know there used to be a slight accusation that he sort of drove me and sort of he did everything through me. In fact, I was the one that joined the athletics club. He didn't he wasn't even aware I'd done that. And then he started, because he was a smart, smart guy, he started Mm -hmm. life as a mathematician, ended up as an engineer, and he used to just stand at the club. He was a racing cyclist, good standard racing Mm -hmm. cyclist. And he used to stand watching what I was doing, and with all due respect to the lovely guys that were there and the club coaches, he just looked at it and thought, a lot of what I'm watching doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense. And he had the kind of brain that used to process everything, numbers, numbers, numbers. And he slowly sort of, almost by osmosis, got into this. And then, being absolutely forensically clever about everything, he then spent the best part of five years just reading everything he possibly could, going to coaching seminars, getting overseas texts translated... Uh, one of his friends was head of languages at Sheffield University and he was always, you know, the lovely guy, Jim, and he used to say, oh, God, your dad's come around again with another text from Germany or Russia or some foreign language, which he said I used to spend most of my spare time translating for him.
2: What he did, though, and this is the engineer in it, he deconstructed
3: it. I he did. Say. He took it apart. And there was a massive moment, rolling the spooling... As I say, carbon dating myself now, the video mm-hmm. on a bit. In 1978, I ran my first European outdoor championships. I got a third, I got bronze medal, which wasn't bad as I was, you know, sort of 1920. And he looked at that and probably most coaches would have gone, well, that's not bad progress. You know, it's your first championship. You've come away with a medal. I got beaten by uh, Steve mm-hmm. Ovet and and we both got beaten by a guy called Olaf Baer that day and i remember shipping some criticism you know i'd gone out from the front i'd tried to run the legs off these guys with the full support and encouragement of my coach was he wanted he knew i wasn't probably good enough at that stage to win but he wanted to understand how i could take the other guys to breaking point point. and you know I, I finished the race and there was a whole heap of criticism you know the press thought that it was imbecilic, you know, you don't run out of petrol in the finishing straight, you know, it was Athletics 101 and, mm. and then I got back and senior coaches were, you know, not wanting to engage and even the athletes looked a bit embarrassed and he bowled into the village, you know, about two hours later, put his arm around me and said, that's unbelievable, you know, that's fantastic. Now all we've got to do <laughs> next year is to learn to run the second lap as fast as the first lap. But what he, what he could have done at that moment was sat back and gone, well, just one last heave will do it and, you know, you'll be a bit strong, you'll know a bit about... And he didn't. He looked at that and he went, no, the market's moved on here. We can't just keep doing the same old, same old. And then he slowly built a team. So he sat at the middle of it, but he went out and got the smartest of their generation. And that was... That's how... Actually, interestingly, a year after, he really ripped up the playbook and did it completely differently. I broke the 800-metre world record. which yeah. stood for a year or two.
2: Without the way that he was trading, you could never have held all four middle-distance world records at the same time.
3: I think that's probably true, and the coaching and, and the basis of my running was multi multi-tiered multifaceted i spent a lot of time in the weights room conditioning circuits i know it doesn't obviously look like that but you know i was at that stage i could easily outlift weightlifting any of the the rugby guys at loveborough i was bench pressing 700 pounds uh, leg pressing 700 pounds that was you know that that came easily to me so i think what they did is that I was probably supremely conditioned. So I was able to run 8 and 1,500 metres, which was the kind of training I was doing for both, meant that I could actually run both distances. Yeah, and just
2: ironically, a final thing on that part of it, which we see in some of the great modern longevity of athletes and sportsmen and women these days. the Roger Federer's, the
3: Ryan Gibbs, yeah.
2: yourselves, is that although you could do all that was needed, you never had to break the body to do it.
3: Again, that's huge testimony to him and the team because the great skill of coaching is to make sure that you are not breaking the body up. We used to get criticism for doing the blood chemistry analysis on the treadmill. You know, why are you running two hours on a treadmill a week when you could be just doing mileage? And his answer was, well, because then we also know the optimal loads that we should be applying at various distances. And why are we are doing that? Because we don't need to do any more than is absolutely necessary at each one of those loads. And if you go beyond it, there's no return and the risk of injury. So all the time, they were actually thinking not just about how quickly could they get me to go, but how could they do it safely so we weren't spending half the year lying on a physio table and that for me was probably the the biggest thing that he had I, I never re- I had injuries like everybody you know I got niggles and you know the seasons that were could, you know slightly could tell but I was never under the surgeon's knife and I guess that Having a lighter frame mm. still means that you know, in my early 60s, I'm still running every day, which still is because
2: well, you, you were you were extraordinary. You were about 65 kilos, weren't you? Or something like that. Yeah, because probably sad, a lot less plan, than that. Even, I'm only even I'm only sort of 70. I'm 60, only sort of 70
3: now. So yeah. still well under 12 stone.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, you know,
3: I, I run pretty much every day.
2: Let's look at some of the great achievements then that you had. You mentioned Steve Ovett earlier on. Of course, it was the great. For all of us as well, not only did we have two great middle distance runners, we had two guys that meant that it was even more exciting because of the challenges amongst yeah. both of you. And the irony that you won each other's event I at know. those two games.
3: Yeah, it was. Look, I think from the distance that allows you to mellow a little bit, I look back, I would love to have won both distances, but I think there was probably a fairness about the fact we both left... Moscow with something. I think it would have been unfair for either of us. Well, unfair is a silly word, but I think it was probably reasonable for us to both leave an Olympic stadium with a title. And I think it was probably better for British athletics that we both left with something rather than one of us leaving empty handed. I'm not sure I'd have conceded that on the day. <laughs> I'm sure you wouldn't. I don't think Dad would have done either. It took me really. about 40 years to get to that point, I have to tell you. Yeah. But
2: that's all part of it. That's part of the competitive
3: But, you know, I so. look back and think, you know, thank goodness it didn't always feel like that. But thank goodness he was there because just subliminally, you know, you know, you sort of try to keep telling yourselves and your coaching teams, don't think about him. You, it's, you're only thinking about, you know. Taking it one day, you know, one game at a time, you know, for a good old platitude. But that's how we were encouraged to think. But you know, in your quieter moments, yeah, he he, we did push each other. You you know, the world mile record in one year changed hands three times in the space of nine days. Mm. So yes, it was it was really important that he was there.
2: Absolutely, and I think important too. The world records were real, and what I mean by that is, I mean you take your. Well, in competitive terms as well in those days, I think. I mean, I know that you still at times had pacemakers and we did and we watched on a Friday night the Emsley Car Mile or everything like this. But, but, you know, these were real records. And that 800 metres of yours that stood for so long was, was down, I think, as well, to that combination of everything you had done with your father had to be
3: yes it was a synthesis of him uh, the team around the table and the fact they presented me on those occasions on the start line with with no stone unturned i mean the golden rule in all this is it goes way beyond athletics you know you never wanted to be tested in an olympic final uh, or have anything thrown at you in a major final that you hadn't covered a thousand times on the training track and I always went in supremely confident that when it had all come together, that there wasn't any guarantee you were going to win. But mm. my God, you'd make it really hard for anybody else to try and do
2: that. Here was a political side of things to see for the first time. Something that's been very much part of your life ever yep. since Moscow in '80, and in various different guises. But the the decision to go, and it was a free it was a free decision to make either way.
3: Yes, it, it was, although there was a lot of pressure on the athletes at the time. Absolutely. I mean, Sags, you, re- you remember it. I remember it, so it well. Very closely. I mean, it was, you know, yeah, we, we live in a democracy. We weren't quite as tough about it as the United States that so were pulling passports and mm-hmm. threatening to bring back taxes in from companies that might be, you know, working alongside the Games. But it was a really interesting, explosive time. And I remember being quite outspoken because I just couldn't understand why you would want to do that with sport. And I think had there been a a more concise approach, and I remember, you know, from, from other sectors, but there wasn't. I mean, I remember the same week we were being told we couldn't go, the Bolshoi Ballet arrived, and BP signed a pipe contract. It, and I just thought, well... We're the cheap option here. You know, if, you're, if your house is on fire, you, the response should be a serious one. It's not, well, I'm going to stop my kids playing with your kids. It, it, and it just it made no sense to me, and I, and I was quite outspoken about it. In fact, one point, a young Douglas Heard, the, then a foreign minister, got my dad to come in I asked him to, could he quieten his son down? I mean, it's in it's in various cabinet papers. My father said, "Well, you know, he's just graduated <laughs> in economics and history. I think he can probably figure this out for himself." For and anybody that knew my father would yeah. not have, you know, you well, you wouldn't need the exchange verbatim. You know a, exactly what was said. It gives us
2: a good chance actually to talk now. I mean, that was Af the the invasion of Afghanistan, all, yeah. of all of that. So, you know, speaking out.
3: Well, and, and interesting, you. you mentioned Afghanistan, of course. Yeah. You know, four years later, we all go off to Los Angeles. The Russians are still in <laughs> Afghanistan. I mean, there's, you know, and the only thing I would say is looking back, that the fact that a lot of us resisted the temptation or put pressure on governments and in the end went, it really killed at that point any. Real political will to, yeah. to try and push a boycott.
2: I mean, you mention 84 again, which was another glorious time, but what it was, a, one of the golden times for us as a, a country with a group of athletes. Off the top of your head, you can think it's yes, Coe, Ovet, Cram, of course, who you beat in 84. And then you've got Elliot and you've got others that were all part
3: of a, yeah. a, a really, really good bunch, weren't they? And look, you know, I, I, it, it's not a romp simply down memory lane but it, it, we have to remember it was an extraordinary period mm. we went from 1978 through to 1987 you know the best part of a decade where every major middle distance title that you could possibly win in the world whether it's commonwealth whether it's world whether it's olympic whether it's european and the world records were held by brits dave moorcroft won in edmonton in 78 i broke the world records in in 79 Uh, steve won the europeans in 78 i won the olympics you know 81 i broke the world records then crammy won the commonwealth and the world championships 82 83 84 we're we're back on the olympic grind Steve won the five thousand in the Commonwealth Games. You know, a year or two later, the, the, that 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 ran that ran out in eighty-seven in Rome when uh, Abdi Beeley for the you know won the uh, the fifteen hundred meters. So, for the first time in a decade, a title wasn't actually sitting I- 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 in a British trophy cabinet. What was
2: your real relationship
3: like with Steve? It was fine, although I didn't. For a large part of the early part of my career, I didn't know him. I was, I came from the cross country Harrier tradition up in the north. Steve was very much a faster sprint. He came from sort of 200s and 400s and slowly moved up distance. Having said that, I I honestly think he was probably one of the most naturally talented athletes I ever competed against because, you know, he could win 200 and 400 meter races, but then he could finish in the, in the, in a the top handful in national cross-country title. I remember the, 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 the single best race I've ever seen him run, it was absolutely jaw-dropping, was the night he won the World Cup, the old World Cup format in, I want to say Dusseldorf, about 1977. And I remember watching that with all my club mates in Sheffield. It, it, I think they tried to sandwich it into a match of the day and he just destroyed the best field probably ever assembled. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, you know, in three years, two years' time, this is what I've got to overcome. So I didn't really know him. And I got to know him far better, actually, in 1984, Mm. because he had a respiratory problem. He collapsed at the end of the 800. And I was actually in the tunnel when he literally fell to the floor. And I watched him. I was very worried about him because I just, you know, I'd never seen anybody in that. Condition, but he was really struggling, and they put him on the stretcher. They took him to the ambulance, and he's he's then. I think it was he just got married, and his his wife was there. She was looking shocked, and and then, you know, he sort of discharged himself and came back (laughs) for the start line of the of the 1500. Just a couple of days later, and actually, there's a great photograph of all three of us with about 300 meters to go in first, second, and third.
2: Just one final thing. Because we've got so much more to talk about. This. When you're actually in that race, in those stadiums, full, and everything, are you alone? Do you do you have to do something mentally?
3: I, or, I, I don't think. In my case, I don't think I had to do it consciously. It just happened. Yeah. You know, the second you get to the line, and the second that start starting pistol goes, you sort of end up in that space. So. If I hit the front and people knew I was attempting a world record, you, you could hear the noise, the wall of, you know, Zurich or Oslo was a classic, you know, the, the wall of noise that followed you around was unbelievable. But, but other than that, you are really just focusing on all the things that are going on around you because it's 800 metre running, for instance, is, you know, it's high-speed chess you're forever trying to figure out well what's my escape route if if he comes out from lane one into lane two do I get boxed Do I have to go around the outside so you're always trying to think ten, eleven paces ahead and then you're in stuck in the middle of traffic and you're trying to figure out whether the guy that's leading is five paces away or six paces and you get that wrong it can be cataclysmic in the finishing straight so you are so focusing on what's going on around you and your own form that the rest of it sort of blurs.
2: It wasn't unusual to go from athletics to think about a life in politics either before you the likes of Chris Brasher and and others were very much part of it but do you think as well that as you've mentioned yeah, the chess thinking three four five six moves in front was something that sort of helped you get into that sort of life, that, that uh, was going to become very much part of what you had to do?
3: It may be part of my mindset, but I also think that, I mean, it's probably, you know, for a large part of the audience listening to this, they'll think this is sort of slightly dismal, but I knew actually I wanted to go into politics for many, many years before I probably even knew I was going to be, you know, good enough to sustain an international athletics career. I think in my 20s I was vice president, chair of the UK Sports Council and that got me to work quite closely with ministers and you then started to understand the machinery of government, the buttons to press to, to get what you need and the buttons to leave alone and and then I suddenly and I'd always been fascinated in politics and I sort of did a political type of course at university and then I, I decided to throw my hat in the ring for a constituency. I was in the process for Falmouth and Camel and I got elect, selected in May I think of Nineteen ninety. So I then had a year and a half oh, as, a, as a candidate election. before I got, you know, just about squeaked across the line in, ni- in the ninety-two election. From
2: being, always being a front runner, was it frustrating? I mean, you were, you, or did you enjoy the beginning? of I love being in today? Cornwall.
3: I think there's an independent streak in me that sort mm-hmm. of understood the Cornish mentality as well. And I'd spent a lot of time in the South West in my sports council capacity. And I, I really like, I didn't, if I'm being honest, I didn't want to represent Surbiton or, you know, I didn't want to be home county South. I did actually want to get out because I'm not, you know, I've sort of, I, you know, I was a, a Londoner brought up in Yorkshire via the West Midlands. I went to university in the East Midlands at Loughborough. You know, my mum was Indian. So I tended not to see the world from the wrong end of a telescope, you know, from within the M25. I really do like being out of the metropolis and, and you know, and Cornwall was, was fantastic. It was a challenge because it took, you know, I, they took a bit of winning over uh, and they weren't... I remember a woman saying to me, I'm sorry, you know, I quite like you, but I can't vote for you because I just, you know, we don't like outsiders. And I remember laughing and saying, look, I come from a county where they're not that keen on each other at the best of time, <laughs> you know, from Yorkshire. So she sort of accepted it and I loved it. It was it was great. Uh, it was it was great fun. You know, we all got swept away in 97 when 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 exactly. Tony Blair won. But
2: well, I mean, 92 with John Major, of course. Yeah. Cricket loving sports fan yeah. as well. And uh, I mean, the inevitability
3: was that you were all going to be gone. Yeah,
2: it had lingered on from Maggie and and, and everything really. And yeah, the and, other and I mean, looking back,
3: I mean, you know, it, it's easy to say, well, we probably should have lost the ninety-two election, yeah. and but actually, you you can't really say that. But I think that you know, it, the timing of getting into politics at the fag end of a, of a government that had been yeah. in power at that stage for you know the best part of eighteen years was. You know, it was tough. So
2: was it conscious decision then not to continue that? I know that you you came back as Chief of Staff for yeah. William Yeah,
3: I, I decided I didn't want to... F- look, I, I, I just had really enjoyed my time in Cornwall and I had hoped... I, did, I only actually didn't lose by that much that year. I think I had the smallest swing against any Conservative seat. But I just... I'm not really very good at looking back and I just made the judgement that I didn't want to... Proclaim undying love on a, you know, a, a by-election circuit. It just didn't feel quite right. I'd been very wedded to Falmouth and Camborne. If I'd been elected, I'd probably be still be there, in that, you know, as a as a member of Parliament. And I did enjoy that. And I had a short period as a government whip. And and actually, the the next phase was quite serendipitous, really, because somebody in the party came to me and said, well, who, who would you support? And I said, well, it's all academic. I don't have a vote anymore. And they said, yeah, but who would you support? And I said, well, personally, and I didn't really know him that well, and I said, personally, if you're looking to the future, I think William Hague. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, that's good because that's what we think. We'd like you to join his campaign. And in the end, I ended up working on the campaign. William got across the line. And then I thought, well, I'll be free to go off and do all the things that I'd sort of done and then he said well look you know could you give me two days a week and I fatally compromised and ended up doing seven (laughs) days a week and enjoyed it and he was the most uh, you know I mean William is now a very close friend of mine we lost the election and then William stepped down and I sort of helped him for about another six months and then went went off and then of course within not that long I was you know, helping the bid for the London Games.
2: Still to come on My Sporting Life on Talk Sport.
3: I care very little for the rights of the cheats. I'm fundamentally doing it because the kid that joins the athletics club like I did at the age of 11, they have to be protected.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
2: My Sporting Life, on Talk Sport, with Sebastian Coe. Can I just sort of go back to Nike, if I may? If we go right back to the thing, if you think about it with Nike, they were part of your sporting life. Oh, my
3: goodness, yes.
2: And you know, why wouldn't you want to stay with people that, no, no. that helped you achieve Look, I, I the
3: f I was the I think I was probably the one of the first athletes to ever win a medal in their shoes. They were a fledgling company when, you know, I joined them. And my father, who as I've said, was an engineer, you know, he was looking at shoes at the time and trying to figure out what was orthopedically the safest shoes to do the workload that I was doing. And he found in in, in, in that particular brand, more forethought going into that. And that's why, that's why I competed with, you know, mm-hmm. with that brand. And he became a very close friend of Bill Bauman, who's the legendary Eugene, you know, the, Eugene, uh, the uh, University of Oregon coach at, at Eugene. And he and Bill were almost kindred spirits. And Bill wrote about it in Sports Illustrated. He said, I met Peter Cohen. He said, it's the closest I've ever found to somebody that shared my ethos. And Bill used to work part-time, not just as a coach, but he'd, start, he'd also started life as an engineer and, and was sort of playing around with compounds and rubber and soles to, to help his own athletes. And then he and Phil Knight, who went on to, win, you know, to own the, the business, he and Phil set up a little joint venture. And that's how it started. So I've been with them since really on and off from 1978 onwards. Signed my first contract with them after the, before the Olympic Games, and then straight afterwards. Mm. And you know, with a brief interruption, you know, towards the end of my career, uh, you know that that was you know that was my that was the company that I was with all the time.
2: I mean, we look at at everything within sport, and for all of us that have played it. At reasonable levels as well. Of course, you're looking for an edge in everything. It's yeah. Not ne- well, everyone sort of from outside seems to think everyone's cheating. No,
3: no, it, and I don't look, think it is. It, look, there is a balance. Of and course. Wearing my World Athletics hat, you know, we have re- you know we have codes and regulations about what constitutes mechanical advantage, and I think there's a real balance here. What you don't want, uh, and you know, I'm I'm trying to be respectful about it, but you know. Swimming world records do come and go very quickly. Sometimes yes. you see three in a heat. And and I think there is rarity value. I think a world record in athletics has real gold leaf currency. I really yeah. think it does. I don't want that to be simply subsumed by better and smarter technology and innovation. But at the same time, you you don't want to create a set of structures of rules that strangle innovation because, you know, how far do you want to go back? You know, I chose a set of shoes because the innovation to help me from getting injured was mm-hmm. really important. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I hope we've sort of struck the balance, but it's not an easy one, you know, and we, it's, we're not the only sport, you know, swimming has had its swim, Every you know, the swimsuits, the, you know, the cyclists have had Dear old Dave Brailsford was burning, burning the kit after Beijing because he didn't want anybody to find out how the yeah. stitching and you know all the stuff was and done. Also, I mean, if you you know cricket bats and
2: yeah, uh, um, uh, American football helmets when they yeah was the they had the, the speakers where and the, the yeah. where they could Look, talk to the coaches. It's, it's all part of learning to deal with it if it's not going to be fair. That's the
3: it, thing, it, isn't? it is, and you know, and it, it has to be. Look, it's a it's a very delicate balancing act. Uh, at any one time but you you know i think we've struck some proportionality we're going to do a lot more work and understand while there's a, a bit of a moratorium but it would have been very difficult mm-hmm. to have actually started retrospectively making illegal shoes that have been on the market for two years yeah
2: well while we're on on that side of things just to look at one or two of the others that uh for the show that you're doing now i, I spoke last year to sharon davis and uh i've got friends that uh, the, the transgender debate is yeah. such a difficult one in the modern world. You know, from a even a, a perspective of what's now happening with the, the, the transgender and people running now in the women's events, with perhaps even the right amount of testosterone to allow them to do that. Yeah, I others. mean, I mean, I don't really know how we go around. I don't want well, to. Become, basically, I don't want to see men. Who feel within themselves that they're women to have anything but that, but can they compete on an equal?
3: Look, I think there are in a way we've been grappling with two very separate issues because Mm. we've been dealing with those athletes with Mm. what we call DSD. Yes. Differences of sexual development. Yeah. And we have asked those athletes to maintain their testosterone levels at below five, five millimoles. Mm. And the reason we've done that is not to stop them from competing, it's to actually help them stay in the sport. We don't want to create a separate category that becomes, you know, a bit stigmatized. You know, we don't want to say, I'm sorry, full stop, you cannot compete. We've, I've always, it is always my instinct to find a navigable mm. answer to this. I, I didn't come into the sport to stop people from competing. And this is a condition that it's not cheating, it's a condition that they were born with. But I do have a responsibility also to make sure that Mm. while I'm defending or trying to create an opportunity for them to do this, that I also have to be also conscious that I have a whole lot more athletes that don't have that condition that... I don't want it to become such an inhibitor. They can't even take up the distance. So again, it's been a sensitive one. There were lots of things in my intray when I became president of the sport, that if I'm being honest had been, you know, the can on so many of those things have been kicked down the road for far too long. So I had to deal with that. And the transgender, uh, we brought those regulations into alignment with our DSD, so they're both at five. And the transgender one is is a really big issue and will be, you know, we've sort of tackled it through athletics, but it's going to be a massive issue in, in, in every sport. No, and again, you know, I'm proud that athletics has mm. sort of trailed the way with that. The other one that I had to deal with was transfer of allegiance, the thought that athletes could suddenly just swap a nation and, and compete. You know, and and we've,
2: Under a flag of we've put a so
3: proper true. process in yeah. place of that. And also, there is, there's a duty of care here because yes. some of those athletes were 16 or 17 years yeah. old. So you know, and I, we've got cases of some of them being traded without even being known that they've been traded on a training track.
2: And of course, one of the other things, not to forget, with it, and I know it's important for you that it is a level playing field, if you think of your career within the sport and those around you, there were an awful lot of drug takers from other countries and the close friends of yours, I'm sure, never got to the top of the podium and you, you knew that the person that they were against wasn't
3: playing by the oh, rules. Look, so uh, of
2: course you're going to try and stamp that out I, in, in the
3: I, way I, you can. Uh, Look, I was, uh, I'm very lucky that I'm sitting here not eaten up by it because mm-hmm. I did win titles, but I also know there were medals that I didn't win yeah. that were won by people who were cheating. And so I was absolutely determined when I had the opportunity to look at this. There's nothing new about this. I spoke, I was the first athlete to speak at an Olympic Congress. I was given four minutes to synthesize all the views. And I can remember it. For two minutes and 40 seconds, I talked about the danger. This was in 1981. Talked about the danger of not getting a grip on drugs in sport. And, you know, the, the, the problem we've got now is it's quite counter narrative. And you made a very good point a moment ago. You know, compared to what was going on 30, 40 years ago, you know, which was a free-for-all, we're in a very much safer environment. You know, we have our own athletic integrity unit now that has made independent all the the processes. We've got the World Anti-Doping Agency. We've got good organisations like USADA, United States Anti-Doping Agency. And there are some really good people now focusing on this. And... Look, one positive test is too much, but I would rather face the embarrassment of a positive test that is being identified and we're able to dispatch the athlete from the sport Mm -hmm. than the sort of genteel decline into a point where it becomes a bit like American wrestling where everybody knows it's fake. Mm -hmm. And worse than that, nobody cares. While people care about it and get angry about it, then I know there's hope for all our sports.
2: And and I think through all of your political career and and everything that you also know, and from the broadcasting, from the journalistic side of the fence, it's a lot easy to throw in stuff there of why do you do this, why are you with these people? You have to work from the inside with whoever, because if you don't do that, you'll never get to the heart of the problem. No, look,
3: you, you have to be pragmatic about it. You know, there are some things that you are absolutely unreconstructed on. You know, it wasn't the easiest decision to suspend the Russian Federation. We were the only federation to do it. Um, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't on everybody's birthday card list when when we did that. We set up a proper process and it has been hard, but at least we've got athletes from Russia back competing as, as neutrals, although we've suspended that because of another problem. But at least we are dealing with the issue rather than, you know, turning a blind eye to it or just waiting for somebody else to, to take a lead. I'm very proud that our sport has, has taken a lead, but they're not always positions... I, I tend to think they're the right positions, but they're not, they're not always the most popular decisions Mm
2: -hmm. it's also if you think about it athletics over the generations that have sort of we've all grown up with and whether you're 60 or 50 or 40 now we've done okay on the track and field we've done so much more so than okay now we have a great rugby side we've got a great cricket team our football team is sort of killing us all with the hope every time they take part. But you actually won so much that it's easy to try and knock that down when the world's gone crazy with uh, the cheats.
3: Yes, it is. And, you know, the vast majority of athletes at the very highest level have competed cleaner, but you pay a high price for a handful that cause massive reputational damage. And I guess for me, the issue, and it's always been a guiding principle for me, and I know this is probably politically incorrect, I care very little for the rights of the cheats. I'm not simply trying to create a system that gets rid of the cheats. I'm fundamentally doing it because the kid that joins the athletics club, like I did at the age of 11, that is prepared to devote another half of their lives to getting to a position where they're able to compete for a national team, they have to be protected. You cannot allow somebody to devote that kind of time effort and attention families that make massive sacrifices you you owe it to them you cannot leave them there to feel that what i'm doing is 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 going to run the risk of being completely jeopardized by somebody who's got a better chemist in lane five than somebody in lane four
2: i remember and it was a, a great privilege to do the the road to athens and you were very much part of that and we were already beginning to think about Singapore, and uh, whether we would be able to go there with a bid that would bring back the games to London in 2012. And Barbara Kasani and PY Jabot were there at that stage. But again, you took things by the scruff of the neck there too, realizing that there was things had to be sorted out from within again. That must be a, one of your proudest achievements ever, not just to have delivered the 2012, but in the way that some of us realized that the things you had to go through to actually get into the opportunity to be in charge.
3: Yeah, and it wasn't a universally popular position to be in. I mean, you know, if you look back, it was a tough time because, you know, there was me saying, you know, trust us, we can do this. And you'd had overruns on, you know, cost overruns and on the Dome, the British Museum, the Scottish Parliament you know Wembley stadium had sort of changed its specification at least five times we'd handed a world athletics championships back because Wembley stadium wasn't going to be track and field compliant and there's me going oh you know you know when half the nation is going oh god keep keep any keep politicians away from big projects and there's me saying don't worry we can you know we can do all this and you know we can clean up the Olympic Park and we can put in new venues and yeah we can have thousands you know and our transports yeah don't worry we'll figure you know I'm sure they looked at me like a vaguely fraudulent Spanish timeshare salesman at the time but we came together as an extraordinary group of people and we just battered our way to it and we were a long way back to start with but once everybody had understood why they woke up in the morning and what the bigger picture was and actually, I, I was inspired because I couldn't see another vehicle in my generation to really raise all sorts of things that the Games could do, not mm. just in sport, but in culture and education and, and that changed landscape in East London. There's a
2: lovely piece in your autobiography where you talk about how you learnt teamwork and commitment from those around you at that time. You?
3: You yeah, through that. the most inspirational group of people, both in the bid and then the seven years of delivery that i probably ever worked with. Yeah. I mean, they were some of the smartest people. And my, my challenge was not to be smarter than them, Was I wasn't. Mm. My challenge was actually just to make sure that I could remove all the inhibitors from their day in exactly the same way that that funny little coaching team that worked with me 40 years earlier had done in exactly the same way. I lent very heavily on those years of coaching.
2: The time of it as well. During that time, I think that the country was at peace with each other at that stage. You know,
3: I look back, and maybe I never witness again a nation that so came together. We've seen, we've seen glimpses of it on different occasions, but there was just an extraordinary spirit. Particularly also around the Paralympic Games mm-hmm. as well. I think that really did change the yeah. way people viewed disability.
2: Let's come right up to date, if we may, as we move towards the end of this. And um, Do you think that everything that is thrown at you within your great sport and others, and there will be much more, that you will deal, as you always have done, Um, first of all, to hear all sides? We have one of our greatest ever Olympians at the moment with Samo Farage and of course the the Nike project and you know you have been a Nike man we've talked all about that and why you're with them where do you stand with all of this now is it on we we get the truth out there and whatever that truth is I will deal with
3: yes it has to be that and you know there's the World Anti-Doping Agency Mm -hmm. there's as I said there are very good agencies out there you United States Anti-Doping Agencies They work closely with our integrity unit and I I think they're best placed to actually deal with that and then whatever their findings are we then have to deal with it. And you know there has to be there has to be trust Mm. and there has to be an understanding that coaches are also part of that trust. It's not just sort of pointing fingers at an athlete. We want coaches that are coaching to the highest level of integrity. But I think that if you look at organisations that are looking at this and dealing with it, they are best placed to to actually get to the point that you want us to get to.
2: And if a Samo Farah or any other athlete were to be found guilty in the proper and, and right ways, you would expect no favours whatsoever from you or your organisation. These people serve the full ban.
3: Yes, they wouldn't get that favour. and And apart from anything else... We now have the integrity unit, which is an independent group. So the tests and the way we go about it are completely anonymized. I don't, you know, there's no way I would even know what they were looking at. And that's, that's a good thing to be able to say. And there is a very, real separation that we've not had before, which is, is now serving as well. And my instinct, it has to be my philosophy to let them get on with this.
2: We've always been a great supporting nation of athletics. Do you think we will get back to the golden times again? I mean, there is so much you have to deal with, whether it's live streaming or television companies or everything, that the sport can be promoted in the way that you all would
3: like it still. Yes, I, I think so. I mean, as you know, I'm telling you, you know this better than most, but, you know, the, the media world has become very fragmented. The old days of being able to guarantee, you know, I think the Ovid Co 1500 metre final still had... You know, well over 20 million people watching it. It's still one of the biggest views. So you're not going to get those numbers anymore, just because of the way the sport, you know, is is, is, the the whole media world has now become fragmented and and fractured. But I think it is still possible to come together for big moments, that an Olympic Games or I hope British Athletics. Whether we go back to where we were in the 80s is probably unlikely. The world's got more competitive. You know, coaching has caught up with us and I'm sorry to say it, in some places it's actually left us behind. So we do need to smarten up that a little bit. But I don't see why we shouldn't have... Look, And I'm talking about the men's yeah. side of our sport. And If you look at what's going on in the women's side yeah, of was- our sport with Dina and KJT and... Athletes like that, you know, and and Jess before her, and you know, Christine. I mean, it's the women that have actually held the held the baton. In
2: the end, still to win an Olympic gold medal, has to stay special because it
3: is very special. Yes, it's the highest pinnacle. It has to be. You know, one of the most popular asked questions I get is, well, you know, Usain Bolt's gone, bit like when Muhammad Ali went. You know who? Well. You're not going to place, replace Usain Bolt and he wasn't just Usain Bolt because of the sack full of medals and titles. He actually had a personality, can fill a room. Yeah. But I think it's we're in a better position now because we're not overly reliant on just one person. The really encouraging side of all this is if you take all our top 10 athletes in every one of those disciplines, something like 25% of them are under the age of 24, 23. Mm-hmm. And that, I've never been more optimistic about the talent coming through than I have been for for many, many years. I think
2: that's the same, you know, in all sports. And I want to talk a little bit about your other love, Chelsea and and football. That I've been (coughs) really impressed getting back to interviewing uh, after quite some time away from it. Just the new youngsters coming through within the game. They're bright. They've got thoughts. Yes, some of their agents think it's all driven by money, but they actually still get excited by what they're doing. And of course. And let's never forget that.
3: I was remember talking to David Beckham and he said, look, if he hadn't been paid to play football, he'd have been doing it for free on yeah. Hackney Marshes. You either love your sport or you don't. And frankly, you're in a very l- lucky and privileged position to be paid very well if you can be for doing it. But my gut instinct is that most people would do it for the love of it. Yeah. You know, some might not. I know it's easy to knock football and I probably see it from a slightly different side but I know that the average Premier League club is doing a mountainous work in the communities. The players are giving up a lot of their time and there's a generation that are coming yeah. through that really understand that they have a quite an important role to play and young managers like Frank coming through. How, how great is that? Well I think it's fantastic. You know I, I, I think Chelsea will look back and think that it, they probably made one of the best decisions they've ever made yes he's on a learning curve and but he's smart and you know he's clever and a little bit more maturity and i think he's going to be one of the great all-time great coaches i mean you 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 probably don't get to see them as much actually i do do. i've not missed a game either you know live or on tv for a long time now
2: well you've got a great family now and you, you yourself have got to the time, we say, where we're beginning to perhaps see things differently. That must be exciting as well, watching
3: your own generation come through. Yeah, their dreams and it is, it is. And, you know, I'm very excited by what I see in my own sport. And, you know, I, I'm one of those great optimists about young people. I'm not sitting there, you know, in a sort of tabloid gloom yeah. about them. I just see young people doing the most extraordinary things day in, day out. And it's a shame that just just relatively few can, you know, damage that image. But yeah. I, I'm very lucky. I see young people, particularly through sport and coaching, you know, doing stuff 24-7 in some of the most challenged communities. I mean, sport is the most potent social worker we have in any community by a distance.
2: Well, as I know you've thought of what Disraeli said, and never complain, which you haven't done during this, but thankfully it's not a case of never explain because you've explained your journey through your life beautifully to us. Sebco, thank you very much.
3: I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to TalkSports, My Sporting Life, with me, Mark Saggers. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top TalkSport content.